this is the first of our new series titled A Blazing Grace. And uh, we had originally planned and prepared and hoped to have our new banners hanging up. They are actually in the back. Um, but one of them had a small spelling error on it, and, uh, which is funny because I actually consider myself a bit of an editor. So we decided not to hang them up until next Sabbath. So we'll get that sorted. Um, but we're launching a new series, and the series is titled A Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament. Another look at the what, everyone? The Old Testament. And I've been really thrilled with the feedback that I've received so far, the positive feedback that we've received so far on people's sort of excitement and anticipation, maybe even a little nervousness. I mean, can you really spend a whole year in the Old Testament in a Christian church? Can we do that? And uh, it's going to be great. And, and as I was studying this week and been preparing, talking to Pastor Daniel and Jared, already I have been tempted to say, let's make it a two-year series. Now, I don't think that's going to happen, but here's what, here's what we're faced with. We're faced with a daunting task, a Herculean task, an enormous task of trying to traverse the entire Old Testament in a year when we just spent half of a year on a single book that only has 28 chapters. So the kind of depth that we were able to go into in the book of Acts um, is going to elude us in our study of the Old Testament. But what we're going to lack in depth, I think we're going to make up for in other areas. And one of those areas is going to be in learning how to see the Old Testament. You'll notice that the series is titled, The Blazing Grace, Another Look at the Old Testament. And the reason it's another look, we almost put a fresh look, but we opted with another look because the danger... Uh, the difficulty, perhaps the most daunting part facing myself, Pastor Jared and Pastor Daniel and others, uh, as we prepare to present a year-long series on the Old Testament, is that so many of us, ourselves included, already feel like we know what's in the Old Testament. We already have a feel for the shape and the, the size of the Old Testament. We sort of have a sense for what's there. And uh, you want to let that advance for me there? It's giving me a beep. I don't know what that is. There we go. Great. So let me go back one here. So we're going to do an introduction today. We're going to spend time today sort of asking ourselves the question, how do you read the Old Testament? We could just dive right into Genesis chapter 1. We'll be there next week. And then Ty Gibson will be with us the following week. He's taking our third sermon in the series. So he's really excited about that. We're excited to have him. And we'll have a number of guests that'll come. James will give us a little uh, presentation. Jeffrey Rosario will give us a presentation. James Rafferty. And uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to ask the question, how do you read the Old Testament? Do you read it in the same way that you read the Sydney Morning Herald? Do you read it in the same way that you read the Wall Street Journal or the way you would read a novel or a book? How do we come to this assortment, to this encyclopedia of books from Genesis to Malachi? And I want to start with an illustration, several of them actually. When you look at the screen there, what do you see? Maybe the question we should say is, what do you see first? Because if you look at it long enough, you'll see that there are two things there. There's a goblet or a vase in the middle, and then there are faces on either side, right? This is a popular picture. There's variations of it. Many of you have maybe seen it before. And uh, the remarkable thing is, is that this is one of those images that after you've seen one, 
you can then switch back and forth. You can see the other. You can choose to sort of see the goblet, or you can choose to sort of look at the faces. And because of the ease of the illustration and the simplicity of it, you can, you can sort of modulate back and forth. I'm going to look at the faces. Now I'm going to look at the goblet. I'm going to look at the faces. I'm going to look at the goblet. But there are other symbols and pictures and portraits that are not so easily switchable, where you can just go from A to B and then back to A and then back to B. So for example, how about this one? Was anyone successful? Of course, it's, trick. it's tricky, right? Because in order to be successful, you would have to first read the message in order to know that you're not supposed to read it. But it gets, it gets harder still. I could have put any word up there, any English word. The word could have been, you know, minivan or offering or Jesus. And you have become so accustomed to seeing those symbols that we refer to as the letters of the alphabet, right? The English alphabet. You have become so accustomed to seeing them and then seeing them in certain orientations and arrangements that we call words that once you've learned to read, you can't unlearn it. You're, it's not even possible for us to look at that and not read it if we know what it says. Once you've seen something in one way, unlike this image where we can modulate back and forth from the goblet to the faces, back to the goblet, and then back to the faces, here you see the word try even if you're not trying. You see the word to, even if you're not trying. You see the word not and read and this. And, and what's more is you can't not see it. Now, how about this one? Have you seen this one before? Anybody seeing this for the first time, this image? Okay, so those of you that are seeing it, my son saw it this morning for the first time. And I said to uh, one of them, uh, this was actually Jessica, I said, what do you see? And she said, a monkey. So maybe some of you see a monkey. How about somebody that's seeing this for the first time this morning? Want to tell us, just nice and loud, what do you see? Okay, you see a face? Okay, you see two faces. Okay, very good, very good. If you look here, if you sort of look, the original thing that I see when I see the image is an older woman, right, with a scarf. Does anybody else see the older woman? Right, so here's the nose. Right? And here's the mouth. She has kind of a long chin. She has a maybe sort of like a fur coat kind of tucked up around her head. She has this, this scarf, right? And I, how many people see the older woman most easily? That's what I see when I look up, when I first glance at it. But do you also see the young woman there? Right? You see the young woman. She's sort of looking away from us. This is her cheek here. This is her nose. This is her long eyelash. And uh, this is maybe like a feather coming out. And this is kind of a big scarf perhaps. This is her hair, and she sort of turned away from us. And if you look, you can see both. Now, this image is a little more difficult than this image, where you can just easily modulate back and forth between the goblet and the faces, the faces and the goblet. And it's much more easy than this, where you can't see anything other than the words, try not to read this. But here... You can see the old woman's face, but then if I try, as I'm doing right now, I can see the young woman. But then I can, with some effort, modulate back to seeing the old woman. But I did this experiment on myself several times this morning, where if I took the image away, and then I put it back up, I would always immediately see the same thing, and that was the older woman's face. Even if I would put it away and I would make a mental note to try and see the younger woman, when I would flash it up, 
the older woman would come first and then I would quickly modulate to the younger woman. Maybe you're the opposite. Maybe you see the younger woman and then have to modulate to the older. Well, this is illustrative of the difficulty that we face when we look at the Old Testament. Some of us already have a picture of what the Old Testament is, what's there, what it says. Many of us have heard some of the highlight stories over and over again. We've heard Daniel in the lion's den, David and Goliath. We know these stories inside and out. We've heard the story of creation. We've heard the story of David and Solomon. Many of us, many of us particularly those that were raised in a Christian home and had the bedtime stories, maybe even, maybe even the Uncle Arthur stories, the Bible stories, we have become saturated and we know these stories very well. Now, not all of us. Some people might be sitting here today and don't know very little, or know very little to nothing about the Old Testament. For some of us, the tricky part is going to be to unsee what we are sure is there. I want to say that again. One of the most difficult things for us in our year-long study of the Old Testament is going to be to unsee what we're just sure is there. Now, don't get me wrong. There might be some things that you see there that are actually there, some wonderful, valuable, amazing things, but in as much as it's possible... We're going to try and clear the table and start putting things on afresh, putting them on brand new, and seeing them as if we had never seen them before. And today I want to give you a little bit of structure, a little bit of advice, a little bit of textual reasoning on how to do that. Let's have a quick prayer. Father in heaven, we open our hearts to you. Open yourself and your word to us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the reasons that studying through the Old Testament is going to be daunting is not only because many of us already think we know what's there, but it's also because there's just such a volume of information, right? Unlike the book of Acts, which was 28 chapters, we're going to study book after book after book and story after story that covers not just hundreds of years but more than a millennia. In fact, if we go all the, back, all the way back to the book of Genesis, right to Malachi, we're dealing with the better part of sort of 4,000 years of human history. And it is ambitious to say the least to think that we're going to cover that in anything like a comprehensive fashion in a year. So when Daniel and Jared and myself sat down, we said, hey, wait a minute. In order to make this digestible and rememberable and accessible we need to break the Old Testament up into its major themes, right? And so when the banners are hung up next Sabbath, you'll see that the left banner will say a blazing grace, another look at the Old Testament. But the banner on this side, you're right, will have these chapters on it so that we will be in continual remembrance throughout the year that this is the basic schematic, the basic layout or the blueprint of the Old Testament. And it kind of goes chronologically and thematically like this. We're going to start in the beginning. We'll have a number of sermons that deal with Genesis chapters 1 to 11, right? What's sometimes called prehistory. Then we're going to get to the family, which is going to be basically a treatment of the rest of the book of Genesis, the family of Abraham. The family of Abraham, of course, then Isaac, then Jacob, become the Israelites that are the centerpiece of the entire Old Testament. So we're going to have to spend some time understanding this family God's call of Abraham and his family, and especially God's covenant with this family. That family then, as you may remember, some of, this, uh, some of you, this will be a very familiar story to you, eventually are led into Egypt. 
and they are then called out of Egypt. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about God's redemptive power in what became the normative moment, the, the, the pinnacle moment in Israel's history, and that was the Exodus experience, when they were called out of Egyptian bondage, out of slavery, and out of a pagan power into this freedom. But what were they called into? And that will launch us into our fourth chapter, which is the land. The promise had always been, going back even to Adam and also with Abraham, Noah as well, that God would give them land and descendants to fill it. That'll come up again and again. God gave the promise of land and the promise of descendants. The promise of land and the promise of descendants. And when we get into books like Joshua and Judges and Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, this is, these are the stories of the family of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, finally taking the land that had been given to them, receiving, as it were, the gift from the hand of God. We could wish that the story had a happy ending and all was well. However, what happens shortly thereafter is that the people clamor in similarity to the surrounding nations for a king, for a monarch, for someone to rule over them. And then we enter the phase of the kings, and we'll spend time on the kings. We won't even have time to treat all of the kings in detail, but we're going to look at some of the most important kings, and what, we're going to ask the question, what makes them the most important? Of course, we'll spend a significant amount of time on David. We'll spend time on him even a bit today. Then we go from the kings to what is the saddest chapter in the whole Old Testament, and that is exile. Now, for those of you that are paying attention, you'll notice that the third chapter and the sixth chapter are similar in that they both begin with the prefix ex, right? Exodus and exile, and both come from the Latin ec, which means out. Exodus is a moving out. To exit is to go out, and exile is to be put out. So they are originally called out into something, but we're going to see because of their unfaithfulness to God's covenant, because of their consistent disobedience and rebellion, they were eventually led not just out of Egypt, but they were driven out of their own land into places like Babylon, Assyria, and beyond. And here's the remarkable thing. If we're able to pull this off by the, by the power of God and by His Spirit, we will be landing this plane, this Old Testament plane, just as we come to December. And December, of course, is the month when Christian churches traditionally, uh, historically celebrate the birth of Jesus. And the goal will be to land on Messiah in and around December. Then a really cool thing is going to happen. We're going to spend the next year studying Jesus' parables and Jesus' announcement about the kingdom. Just a little preview for you there. So this is going to take us a little while. And we're going to begin our study of how to study the Old Testament by going to what might seem like a really strange place. We're going to go to the very first verse of the New Testament. Open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. What a strange place to begin a year-long study of the Old Testament in the first book of the New Testament. But is it so strange after all? Well, you will notice in Matthew chapter 1, I've put the first verse on the screen here for you. It says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That could, that could read like this. The genesis of Jesus Christ. The opening of the story of the lineage. So in many ways we have the book of Genesis, which is the beginning, 
right, of, of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here, Matthew, very similar to John, by the way, who begins this way, in the beginning was the Word, which is clearly referring back to Genesis. Matthew begins similarly. The Genesis, or the genealogy of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And then he says something very interesting. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there are three big figures, three looming, gigantic figures in the Old Testament. There are many uh, other mountains, very high mountains, including people like Noah and Elijah and Solomon. But the three looming figures of the Old Testament, two of them are here on the screen for you. That would be David and Abraham. Who do you think might be the third? Moses. The three high peaks of the Old Testament, the people around whom the Old Testament wraps, are Moses and then Abraham and David. And when Matthew introduces this genealogy or this seemingly really boring list of so-and-so had a son named so-and-so, 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 all of these begets, he begins it by letting you know that the beginning of Jesus Christ in his incarnation is that he is a son of Abraham, he is a son of David. He then goes through those genealogies. I'm not going to make you read them, but what I am going to show you is how he concludes those genealogies. Look at verse 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are how many generations? Fourteen generations. And from David to the captivity in Babylon are how many generations? Fourteen generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are how many generations? Fourteen generations. Okay, let's start by this. Here's Matthew's summary of the Old Testament. This is why we're starting our study of the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. Because Matthew provides us with the template to do the very thing we want to do. He was essentially saying to the Jews to whom he was writing, hey, go back and read your own books, and this is what you'll find. He gave us a template. He gave us a study guide. He gave us a way to know how to navigate the seeming infinite complexity of the Old Testament and their kings and their lands and their descendants and their sons and their conquests and their uh, defeats. Ah, he says, this is it. And it's right up here on the screen for you. He says, it really breaks up into three great chapters. We gave seven chapters. But Matthew says, really, there's three chapters. Now, he begins, as a faithful Jew, with the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. Luke, the gospel writer, who's a Gentile, he doesn't begin his genealogy with Abraham. He's concerned that the genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, right? We could develop that. But we're going to stay in Matthew here. And he gives us from Abraham to David... From David to the captivity, and then from captivity to Messiah. Now, you might remember that just last Sabbath, Pastor Jared Daniel and myself preached a sermon. It was a really long one, wasn't it? We just, we're, we're sorry for that. The plan was to preach for 45 to 50 minutes, which we did twice. <clears throat> it was a little longer than we'd hoped, but we were having so much fun, you'll just have to forgive us on that one. But you will remember that point seven out of the like 27 or 28 points that we made. No, it was 10. Forgive me. Point number seven out of the 10 points was this. The book of Acts hinged on Acts chapter 7 
where Stephen stood up and Luke records the longest, this is review, Luke records the longest sermon in all of the book of Acts. And funnily enough, it's not a sermon of Paul's and it's not a sermon of Peter's. It's a sermon of Stephen's. And Stephen's sermon is this gigantic history of Israel. Because for Luke, he knows that right on this point, if Israel doesn't begin to understand the purpose and direction of their own history, they will ultimately fail and fall, not just corporately, but individually. And so he allocates a huge percentage of his book, uh, this gigantic sermon to, uh, this gigantic section to a single sermon, and the sermon is a retracing of history. And what we said was this. The lesson that we can take away is that we don't want to forget, right? Lest we forget. We're continually admonished as Americans and Australians and others to remember. From whence cometh thou? Where are you from? How did you get here? Because there is a danger, as has been quoted, that if we, if we forget the past, if we forget our history, we are doomed to repeat it. Lest we forget. There in that sermon, Stephen had said, I am the God of your fathers. And our takeaway was this, you might recall. Very simply, Stephen said this. Hey guys, this story, this Jesus story has come from somewhere and it's going somewhere. This thing just didn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus didn't just land from an alien ship. A UFO just sort of lowered him out and there's no preamble. There's no lead up. Jesus is not act one of the drama. No, 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 no. He takes place well into the drama. In fact, I tweeted this just this morning. You can't even understand the mission of Jesus apart from the Old Testament. It's impossible because he shows up about three quarters of the way through the movie. Right? What happened up to that point? And that was exactly Stephen's point in his sermon there. He's saying, hey, there's a story going on here. And that's the point that Matthew's making. He's saying, hey, I'm going to tell you all about Jesus. But I can't tell you about Jesus until you first know that there was a promise to Abraham. That promise was provisionally, preliminarily fulfilled in David. Then from David, the promise was eventually lost sight of. The covenant was broken, which led to a captivity. But the, cavity, the captivity itself will eventually be relinquished. And we will end up at Messiah. One Two, three. So it's a template. Now it gets fascinating, really fascinating. Because Matthew has purposefully, and we know this because he has seemingly, strategically left out, we would even say conveniently, a couple generations. What he seems to be saying is this. The history of Israel divides up into roughly equal parts. Fourteen 14, 14. Why the 14 thing? Why three 14s? Well, here's at least part of the answer. Three 14s is six sevens. And seven, as you would be aware, Seventh-day Adventist, is a hugely significant number in the cycles of Scripture. Right? You get, for example, to a book like the book of Revelation, and you have seven seals and seven churches and seven trumpets. Right? These sevens are symbolizing, hey, something's coming to closure. Something's coming to finality. Something is about ready to end, and another thing is about ready to begin. And so this is a remarkable thing. When Matthew structures the Old Testament, he says there was a 14, there was a 14, there was a 14. And his Jewish audience would have immediately caught on to what I'm asking you to catch on to. There was a 7, a 7, a 7, a 7, a 7, and a 7. 
And that sixth seven gets us right up to Messiah. Notice this. This pattern of six sevens suggests that, what's the next word? What's that word? Suggests that Sabbath, what's the next word? Rest. And what's the third word? Closure are soon to follow. Right? Something is coming. He is announcing here with this very particular, very mathematical, very symmetrical telling of the Old Testament story from David to Abraham, or from Abraham to David, from David to the captivity, from the captivity to the Messiah. He is saying, hey, look, there was a seven and a seven, a seven and a seven, a seven and a seven, and you should now have, as any Jew would have had, a pregnant sense that, well, wait a minute. So the end is coming. The closure is coming. The Sabbath is coming. No wonder when we come to the New Testament, shortly after Jesus' baptism, he started saying really wild, really audacious things like this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is very near. Jesus understood that he was living in that pregnant moment between what has been and what is becoming. Always announcing that they were on the verge of something. The kingdom of God is near. It's close. It's proximate. Because Jesus understood the thing that Matthew understood. He didn't just drop out of an alien ship and land here and say, okay, what's going on? What's my role in the story? What's taking place before I got here? Oh, no. Jesus knew, as Matthew knew. And I'm inviting us all to know that there was a story. There was a tale. There was a narrative of which Jesus becomes the conclusion, the capstone, the finality, even... The Sabbath, too. One of the most remarkable things that Jesus said is this. Matthew chapter 11. You've probably heard these verses before, and you probably, perhaps in a time of difficulty or strife or pain or difficulty, applied them to your own personal situation, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a depth. There is a a bottomless, plumbless depth to what Jesus is saying here, and hopefully it'll begin to jump out at you. Look at this, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And what does he say? I will give you rest. That could easily say, I will Sabbath you. You come to me. You're tired. You're burdened. I will Sabbath you. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? What does he say a second time? You will find rest, not for your bodies. Oh, you will find a soulful rest. Jesus here knows good and well that there is some specific lineage, some specific demarcation, some specific symmetry of time that he is arriving as the announcement of the final chapter in Israel's sometimes up, sometimes down, topsy-turvy history. This idea of finality and the Sabbath come together in passages like Genesis 2 that we'll look at in more detail next week. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. We're finished. Notice what happens on Sabbath. Something's finished. Something's brought to the end. Something is brought to closure. On the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. You see, it's against this backdrop of this seven-day cycle, this seven 
cycle that, that there's the time for the work, there's the time for the struggle, there's the time for the toil, there's the time to be weary, and then there's a time for Sabbath. There's a time to rest, and not just your bodies, but to rest your souls. When Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, he knew that something significant was coming to an end when he said these three words. It is, what is it? It's finished. Jesus understood that something with his death, something was drawing to a close. It's more than coincidental that he brought this Sabbath rest to a rest. He brought this six, this, this seven, 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 seven to a rest on the literal weekly Sabbath itself. Resting in the tomb on the Sabbath. Again, the devs here, right, we can see it on the surface and say, oh, that's fascinating. And then we go down one level and it's more fascinating. And we go down still further and the depths continue to unfold below us. Matthew's point is unmissable, isn't it? Jesus' life makes sense only as a continuation of a, what is that word right there? Of a larger story. You see, God is doing something. Matthew says it breaks down basically into, into these three chapters. It goes from Abraham down to David. It goes from David down to, the, down to the exile. And it goes from the exile, finally, to Messiah. We're going to break it up into our seven chapters, which more or less follow the same basic pattern. What I'd like to do now is read you this great quotation from a book that I was just exposed to this week, recommended to me by a good friend. A young lady who's actually going to be our keynote speaker in the Connections Tent at Big Camp. I'm really excited. She's, she's a theologian, and I sent her an email. I said, Kessia, I need you to recommend a book. I need a great introductory book to the Old Testament. She said, oh, you've got to read this book, and I've not been able to put it down. It's called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. Highly recommend it. Great book. Listen to this. Listen to what Chris Wright says here. He says, we need to respect those intentions, and we need to ask why it is that Matthew will not allow us to join in the adoration of the Magi until we have plowed through his list of begettings. Why can't we just get on with the story? Why don't we just get to worship, bring our frankincense and bring our incense and bring our mirror and bring our gold? Why can't we just get into the story? Why all the beget, 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 which strikes us as decidedly antiquated and downright boring? Look at what he goes on to say. Because, says Matthew, you won't understand that story, the one I'm about to tell you, unless you see it in the light of a much larger story that goes back for many centuries, but leads up to the Jesus that you want to know about. That longer story is the history of the Hebrew Bible, or what Christians came to call the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. Jesus is the last chapter in the story. You just want to skip to the last chapter, and, and Matthew says, oh no, you've got to read the book first. When Matthew gives this brief summary from Abraham to David, David to the exile, and exile to Messiah, he's assuming that you have a basic familiarity, that you have a basic literacy of the Old Testament, which many of you do, but some of us don't. And we're going to discover over this year that some of our literacy is actually misreading the text or misunderstand what's going on. I tell you, for myself, just so you don't think I'm pointing the finger at you, I'm deadly nervous about a few passages in the Old Testament, and I purposefully selected those passages to preach on. Because there are things in the Old Testament that scare the death out of me. 
not literally, not like I can't sleep at night, but I have a difficult time shoehorning my picture of God in the New Testament, a God of love, a God of kindness, a God of forgiveness, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, with certain passages in the Old Testament. Does anybody else have that difficulty? Well, in this series, we're not going to avoid conveniently those old difficult passages. Jared and I, we made a decision on this. We're not just going to go rushing to the stories that we all know and love. We will talk about some of them. We said, hey, we want to tackle the tough stuff. And it's not going to be easy to open up the text and to see it with new eyes. Because we're going to be tempted to see that old woman. Or in your case, to see the goblet. Or to see, but we're going to have to unsee so that we can learn to see. That's what Matthew's saying. All right. Here's the sentence up here. We'll land this plane. I'm not going to make you sit here for an hour and 20 minutes today, that's for sure. The Old Testament tells the story that Jesus completes. That's our basic thesis. This is Matthew's Old Testament summary. Let's just unpack it a little bit more detail. Why would Matthew feel at liberty to break the first major chapter of Israel's history down from Abraham to David? In fact, there's actually a really natural arc that flows from Abraham to David for this reason. I've written it for you here. The covenantal promise of land and descendants, that's what God said to Abraham. We'll see that in a few weeks. We'll spend a whole, two whole weeks on Abraham. But by way of preview, the covenantal promise of land and descendants to the securing of the land and the establishment of nationhood under a godly king, David. It's a logical place to sort of draw your first demarcation because God made the covenant promise, I will give you land and give you descendants to Abraham. Abraham was followed by Isaac, Isaac by Jacob, Jacob by Joseph, Joseph by uh, uh, Jacob by the descendants of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel that eventually become the nation of Israel that in the time of David, more than any other, more than the judges, and we'll spend a little bit of time in the judges, it's the most difficult and frustrating book probably in the Old Testament. But by the time we get to David, there is some significant sense in which the promise to Abraham has been at least provisionally fulfilled. They have well-secure borders. They have a well-defined land. The tribes occupy that land. And there is a godly king on the throne. Shortly after David, though, the wheels begin to come off and we go from David to Solomon and from Solomon rapidly downhill and we end up at captivity. Notice what the screen says. The greatest king to the demise of the kings, from great hope in David to utter hopelessness, from confidence and optimism to captivity and despair. God had warned them against the idea of a king. He had warned them against the idea of a monarchy. They had pressed on in their importunity. They had pressed on in their stubbornness. They were just sure that they knew better than God. So God, as we're going to see over and over again in the Old Testament, works with and sometimes around the uh, maneuverings and machinations of his people. And he does that here. But eventually, those seeds that are sown, there's a great text in the New Testament that says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will eventually reap. And as long as you had a good man, a godly man, and certainly he wasn't always so, but as long as you had a man after God's own heart on the throne, all would be well. But the story of large sections of the Old Testament is that sometimes men with less than godly hearts ended up on that throne and set an example and a trajectory and a direction that brought the children of Israel further and further and further from God and His covenant. A natural place to draw the demarcation. 
when Assyria finally come and bring Israel into captivity, and shortly thereafter, Babylon comes and brings Judah into captivity, and it's as if Satan could, you know, sort of say, aha, the people of God, the promises of God, erased from the earth. But there was a little whisper, a little whisper from prophets like Daniel, who began to say, yes, Israel has been unfaithful. And yes, the covenant has been broken. But a Messiah will come. A Messiah will come and he will do what Israel failed to do. Messiah will keep covenant with God. Look at this. Captivity to Messiah. The abandonment of covenant. The harsh realities of exile. Captivity, release, Eventually, the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed by Babylon lead to not a triumphant Israel, but a triumphant Messiah. A covenant-keeping, exile-ending Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Matthew says, if you don't know the story, how can I tell you about Jesus? If you don't know where we've been, how could you appreciate where we are? I've got to tell you where we've been so you can know where we're going. Shortly after Jesus' baptism, Jesus himself made his way into his home church, his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And word was on the street that this was a provocative, young, promising upstart of a rabbi. And so uh, Jesus was given the invitation to take the traditional the reading for the day comes into Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, like you and I, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, into church on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. I love this part. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Get the picture in your mind. Jesus knows he's the seventh seven. Jesus knows he's the son of Abraham. Jesus knows he's the son of David. Jesus knows he's the promised Messiah. No one else in the room does. And they put a book in his hand. They say, hey, the reading today is from Isaiah. Knock yourself out. So he would, have, he would have established himself there. And unlike us, which can just quickly, easily, dexterously turn to Isaiah. I can be to Isaiah. I'm there already. It just takes a moment. In what's called a codex binding. It's just that easy. Not in the days of Jesus. In the days of Jesus, before codex bindings, before chapterization and versification was added, there would have been a table, probably, oh, two to three meters in front of him, perhaps as big as four meters, and there would have been a big, heavy scroll on there. And you don't just quickly turn. These scrolls were delicate. They were handwritten. You don't treat them, you know. It would have taken time. This would have been, an, and this would have been a pregnant moment as Jesus pours over. looking for a certain passage. No easy chapters to just find chapter 60. Oh no, he's got to find it. He's looking. Ah, ah. And after what could have been minutes, he finds this passage. Look at what it says. It says, he was handed the book of the prophet and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. It wasn't just like the daily reading. No, no, no. He found the place. What place did he find? He found what we would call, you can actually turn to this if you want to, go to Luke chapter 4 if you want to, it's going to be up on the screen. But in Luke chapter 4, 
Beginning in verse 18, he here finds a particular passage in Isaiah and he begins to read. Now this thing that he's about ready to read applies to Israel. But Jesus is about ready to drop a bomb on his home synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal those who are broken in heart. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives. The funny thing is, is that by this time in Israel's history, they are no longer in captivity, at least not to Persia. They live in their own town, Jerusalem. They have their own temple that has been rebuilt, much smaller than Solomon's original temple. But at least they're in their own backyard, so to speak. Some could have argued that in a sense they were in captivity to Rome, but they didn't think of themselves as captive in the days of Jesus. But Jesus said, your captivity goes deeper than geography. Your captivity goes far deeper than your ability to walk to and fro. Jesus says to preach liberty, to, set it, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and then to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to announce that a certain year has come. In fact, in the context, it's the Jubilee year. And if time allowed... We could unpack how there's not only the seven, the six sevens of Matthew chapter 1, but then you have the jubilee on steroids from Daniel chapter 9, which was 70 times 7. If 7 is a Sabbath and 7 sevens is a jubilee, what's 70 sevens? That's a jubilee on steroids. And it all leads up to Messiah, the jubilee. Now watch this. When Jesus gets done reading, he finishes reading closes the book back up. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And there must have been a sense, there must have been a pathos, there must have been an energy with which he read the text that caused people to be riveted. What? He sure seemed to be reading that as if it was in the first person. And when Jesus senses that the eyes of the perhaps hundreds of pairs of eyes are riveted to him that Sabbath morning, he turns to them and he drops a bomb. All of those eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, what's that next word? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus just, as it were, tore a page out of their own history. Something which they were looking forward to happening. Looking forward to a Messiah, looking forward to a Joshua, looking forward to a deliverer. Jesus just tore that page out of history, read it with a pathos and an energy and a conviction that clearly communicated that he meant more than a, than a standard rabbi would have meant in reading it. And then he had the audacity to say when the eyes were riveted upon him, this is fulfilled today. You see, Jesus, Jesus knew where he was from. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going. Jesus completes the story that is the Old Testament. Somebody says, why are we going to spend a year studying the Old Testament? I'll tell you why. Because when we're done, if the Spirit comes down and the grace of God does what it's able to do, we will be more in love with Jesus, more in love with his story, 
and more aware of his story and his love and his breadth and his depth and his compassion and his beauty and his glory than we ever were before we understood the story. It's the very place we need to go if we're going to understand who this guy is. So that's our, that's our roadmap right there, guys, for the next year. Beginning family, Exodus land, king's exile, and then we'll spend the whole next year talking about Messiah. As we do this, Pastor Jared, myself, and Daniel will be keeping our eye on three very important foci, is what they're called, focus points. We're not just going to go charging off into the Old Testament. No, we're going, to have, we're going to have three sort of fence posts, as it were, or three maybe lighthouses that we line up, like a surfer will line up. He has his point here, and he has his point here, or she has her point here and here, and then she lines up. It's called triangulation. He line up by the third point. We're going to have a triangle that will allow us to navigate the Old Testament in a way that will actually be meaningful. It won't just be a series of stories hodgepodge together, thrown together, mix it up, and then hope to come up with your own interpretation. Oh, no. We're going to have a triangle, a GPS, a triad, that will guide us through, and they are conflict. We're going to see that the Old Testament is set against the backdrop of not just a fleshly conflict, but a spiritual conflict between God and His enemy. Covenants. We're going to see that covenant is the very center of the Old Testament. God's covenant to Abraham, his family, and his descendants. And how it all anticipates Christ. And so there it is. Conflict, covenant, and Christ. And in effect, what we will do is get ourselves a pair of glasses. I have glasses. I can see reasonably well without them, but I see better with them. Some people are blind without their glasses right? All of us in this room need glasses. Not these kinds of glasses, but glasses to know how to read the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul said these are the glasses that you need. This is our final text. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20, Paul, who knew the Old Testament better than anyone in this room probably does or ever will, said these words. For every promise that God ever made, is yes in Jesus Christ. Paul said, man, what happened on the road to Damascus, in one of the deep ironies of Scripture, when I lost my sight, I gained my vision. When I went blind, I began to see. And it took blindness to show Paul how to go back and read his own stories, how to read his own history, how to understand his own legacy, the legacy of Abraham, the story of Abraham, his own narrative, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses. Who are these people and how do they factor in? And Jesus, on the road to Damascus, blinded Saul, who became Paul. But then he did something even more important. He gave him a pair of glasses and he said, all right, now this is how you read your own story. This is how you read your own narrative. This is how you read your own history. And Paul would write years later, Oh, I see it. Every promise that God ever made from Genesis to Malachi 
Every promise in Isaiah, every promise in Psalms, every promise in Nehemiah, every promise in 2 Chronicles, every promise in Joshua, every promise in Deuteronomy, every promise in Numbers, every promise that God ever made, he says, is yes in Jesus. He got glasses that helped him to see Jesus everywhere. He saw the covenant, he saw the conflict, but above it all, He saw what we're going to see this year. He saw a looming figure, looming higher than David, looming higher than Abraham, looming higher than even Moses. He saw Christ. You looking forward to that journey? Man, I tell you, I'm fired up. It's going to be a great one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're looking forward to a year-long journey. I know that Jared, Daniel, and myself and others are facing this year with no small trepidation. Can we do it? Can we go see what Matthew said is there? Can we go see what Jesus said is there? Can we go see what Paul insisted was there? Father, can we see the first part of this story? Sometimes ugly, sometimes difficult, sometimes tragic, sometimes hopeful. Can we go see that first three-quarters of the story, that first seven-eighths of the story that makes the last chapter so awesome, so meaningful, and so life-changing? Father, I pray, my pastoral heart, and I know this is Jared's prayer as well, the prayer of my heart, Father, is that this would be far more than a theological journey for a group of people who already know the truth. Father, may this be a deep, soul-searching, life-changing journey to your heart where reformation, revival, repentance, restoration, transformation will take place in the lives of the people that occupy these seats. Father, we want to look back When 2016 is upon us and we're looking back at this year, we want to say that was a year that Jesus visited us in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our growth groups, and in our church. We're looking forward to it, Father, and we're trusting totally to your spirit. Do something awesome. We expect it. In Jesus' name. Let all the saints of the living God say, Amen.